Good morning, everybody. Whoa, yeah, I made sure you're really awake, huh? That's what we're talking about. All right. Um, there is no video this morning because if you were here last week, you remember, and uh, we provided it again, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and if you look over on the far right-hand side, you see a little thing for 2nd John and a little thing for 3rd John, and uh, Pastor Roger said, you know what, we can't ignore these books, and so uh, today I get the privilege of being able to open up 2nd John to you. And next week, we'll be digging on into 3rd John. So just because it has a little itty-bitty little space on this whole big sheet of paper, please do not think that it is insignificant whatsoever. Um, I want to start off, and uh, if you are someone who takes notes, um, uh, the title is, What is Truth? That is a powerful question that comes all the way back when Pontius Pilate asked Jesus that very question. What is truth? And John, who also wrote the gospel, in chapter 18, verse 36, or 38, just nailed that and made sure that that was put in there. And this question has echoed down the sanctuaries and corridors of time. And it's growing louder and louder today. The spirit of Pilate lives in our day. Uh, Stephen Lawson wrote a series of three articles entitled uh, Moment of Truth. One article was entitled It's Rejection. The other was entitled Reality. And the other was The Reception of It. Three different perspectives of truth. And the spirit of Pilate is alive and well on college campuses. It sits in the halls of our government and legislates our moral code. It reigns in our media. It teaches in many of our seminaries. It stands in pulpits today as well. We live in a culture that is defiant of any notion of truth. We live in a day that only denies truth. It not only denies it, but it is against truth. This is an age that is tolerant of anything and anyone except one who claims to know the truth, right? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan, the serpent, slithered right on into the pages of human history, and he came to launch an attack on the truth. And he said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In verse 1. Satan knew very well what God had said. But he came to call God's words into question. To dismiss the truth of God. In Romans chapter 1 verse 25, we read how people exchange the truth of God for a lie. That is the hour in which you and I live in today. We live in a culture that's exchanged the truth of God for a lie and has suppressed the truth. This is the demise of any life. It's the destruction of any nation and the disintegration of any society. It all begins with the rejection of truth. 
Nowhere is this more clearly seen than with our college students who attend universities, that in many cases, these same universities attempt to undermine the truth. A recent survey that I came across uh, bears this out. Of those surveyed, 64% of adults aged 36 and over, 36 and over, said there are no moral absolutes. And only 22% said there are any moral absolutes. 75% of those aged 18 to 25 reject moral absolutes. They have no moral compass because they've rejected the truth. 83% of teenagers said morality and truth depend upon one's individual preference and upon the circumstances. The younger you are, the more you embrace the statement that there is no absolute truth today. It's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for Patrick Tao and for the Jenkins who and other volunteers in, in our uh, youth ministry. The Jenkins have been involved in youth ministry and now have, have started in, and, uh, just this past month to reach out to college students and give them apologetics, give them truth, not cramming it down their throats, but lovingly continuing what these kids have learned in the homes, in, in here at church, and they want to help continue that because it's not getting any better, folks. It's getting worse. Men and women of our day are increasingly given to this idea. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes, right? The only truth is that there is no truth. The only intolerance is the intolerance of intolerance. I believe intolerance is, is just a new religion of our day. It's all traced back to the point of departure, the rejection of truth. We see it everywhere today. Humanism says man is the truth. Pragmatism says whatever works is the truth. Pluralism says everyone has a piece of the truth. Relativism says each situation determines the truth. Mysticism says intuition is the truth. Skepticism says no one can know the truth. Hedonism says whatever feels good is the truth. Existentialism says self-determination is the truth. Secularism says this present world is the truth. Positivism says whatever man confesses is the truth. This is the world in which we live in a world that rejects truth. Now, John the Elder, as, as he writes in this letter, dealt with the same problem in his day as well. He recorded Pilate's exchange with Jesus in his gospel. He also recorded Jesus' response to Thomas when Thomas inquired and says, Lord, we do not where you are going, so we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, and 
Most of you know this, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Some 50 or 60 years after Jesus walked on this earth, closer to the end of John's very own life here on the earth, John was addressing this second uh, letter to the church and its believers. This little letter only consists of 13 verses, and, and 3 John only has 14 verses. But this one, it's the smallest book in the Bible. John wrote this letter to warn believers about the false teachers that were making their way around. He wrote about the importance of truth. One scholar breaks down uh, this book uh, like this. He says that truth generates an exclusive Christian community. And then in verses four through six, he says truth demands a distinctive Christian ethic. In verse seven, he says truth involves propositional Christian doctrine. And then in verses eight through 11, he writes the truth requires unceasing Christian vigilance. I like how um, one scholar, someone that I turn to quite often to get his insight on some things, uh, Tom Constable, and he simplifies this book this way. He says there's an introduction, and then he says it's the importance of truth that is being focused on here. And underneath the importance of truth, he then talks about practicing the truth and protecting the truth. And that's where I'd like to go today. But first, I, I want to encourage you, if you open up your Bibles to 2 John, I'm going to read the whole book. Can you believe it? Whew. So I'm going to be reading uh, 2 John, verses 1 through 13. And it says this, The elder... To the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Verse 4, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Papyrus and ink probably would have been more accurate in the translation. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Pretty powerful stuff. Um, John loved this church, and so did other Christians who knew about it. I'm not going to spend the time trying to debate um, uh, uh, as far as the elder. That's the only description that the author gives of who it is. Same, same description uh, for third John as well. But because uh, there just seems to be so much evidence that points to the same author of the Gospel of John and the same author of the book of Revelation, we're just going to kind of skip from there. Uh, that term, the elder, um, was kind of more like a, a term of endearment. It's kind of like, you know, my kids call me old man. Okay, hey old man. Well, old man, you wouldn't be hurt if you didn't try to do those things that you, you shouldn't be doing, you know, kind of thing. And John is just kind of referring to himself. He's at the, at, toward the end of his life. He's lived a long life. And so he just probably that little term of endearment. But um, he writes about the basis of his love was the truth the Christians there believed in common with one another. This truth refers to God's revelation in Scripture. The importance of, uh, of this truth is clear from the fact that John referred to it three times in two verses. Westcott, an old, old scholar and pastor, I mean, we're talking back 1880s, he wrote, the truth makes love possible. I like that. Verses two, or verse three says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. In this verse, John wanted his readers to appreciate the importance of guarding God's truth and practicing love for one another. Those two things, truth and love, are the basis for what he writes, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, God's unmerited favor. Mercy, it's compassion. And peace, it's harmony and this sort of inner tranquility that comes when you know that you are the recipient of all the above. The succession, grace, mercy, and peace, marks the order from the first notion of God to the final satisfaction of man, wrote one scholar. These qualities flourish where truth and love prevail. 
Zane Hodges in his commentary on this book. He wrote this, when divorced from truth, love is little more than sentimentality or humanism. If I truly care about my brothers, then I will want them to know and live according to God's truth. F.F. Bruce, another scholar, wrote, where truth and love coexist harmoniously, we have a well-balanced Christian character. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature, mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Now we're going to dig on in verses 4 through 11, kind of the meat, where it talks about the importance of truth. John Stott declared this, In the central section, these verses, verses 4 through 11, he writes, we have a brief summary of the great contrasts between truth and error, love and hatred, the church and the world, which are dealt with at greater length back in 1 John. And if you would have had a good Bible teacher teaching that book last week, he probably would have done a really good job of setting that all up for this week. But, oh well, you had to settle. Um, Practicing the truth, verses 4 through 6. John wrote this epistle to urge his readers to continue to be obedient. Obedient, how? By responding positively to the truth of his revelation. He also wanted them to resist the inroads of false teachers who sought to distort this truth. Now he dealt with this first purpose, responding positively to the truth uh, of his revelation. Uh, Let's look at verse um, four, five and six. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I want to stop and pause for a second. Um, uh, There are still a lot of debates going on. Was this a personal letter that Paul had written to an individual woman who was not named in this church? That's a possibility. It is. And the two different names, it could be, it could be eclecti, but that word is also used in verse 13 when he's talking about and your sister it's the same word so we doubt if it was that or korea or kyria and and so uh, some people hold to that and he's talking about her actual children for myself i believe that he was just using that description dear lady as if you know we're talking about the church as the bride of christ doesn't mean i'm right that's just where i i, I lean toward and so that when Paul or, or when John is writing this letter and he's writing about the dear children, I believe he's talking about the people within the, the local church, the house church that this letter went to. So he says, uh, and now, dear lady, in verse 5, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands as you have heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk 
in love. Now, I think it's important because uh, John is not laying something new on them. In fact, uh, you're going to be very familiar within Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and, and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus in verse 29, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus was quoting the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Not a new command. It's just reiterating. And then he goes on. And he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Jesus just didn't come up with these things off the cuff. They've been there from the beginning. And he's helping them to focus on in and narrow it down. And he goes on and he said, there is no commandment greater than these. So, we come back to John and his epistle and we, we look at this. It's, it's not a new teaching. But boy, it sure seems hard to practice, huh? I don't know about you, but I'm struggling with the practice of this. It seems like each and every day, if I'm being honest about it, Verse 4, John began by commending the church. He had met some of its members who were walking in obedience to God's truth. And, you know, we talked last week, walking in the light in 1 John 1, 7. And the late uh, great pastor, he just passed away uh, the past month, Warren Wiersbe. He wrote this. He said, it is much easier to study the truth or even argue about the truth than it is to practice it. What a sad, honest evaluation. A determination. Boy, I love studying about the truth. I even love talking about it. But practicing it, ooh, that's hard. It's really hard. In verse 5, John's message for this church was not some new revelation. It, it was a reminder to keep on walking in obedience to God's truth by continuing to love one another. And in 1 John, we could see that in chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. We could see that in chapter 3, verses 4 through 18. We could see that in chapter 4, verse 7, verse 11, and verses 20 and 21. John's already been dealing with this. He's been encouraging them, reminding them, love one another. That's how they'll know we're our fathers, by our love for one another. And this was important since false teachers were encouraging the readers to depart from the truth that they were hearing. If anyone had a question about what loving one another meant, John explained that it is essentially, bottom line, it's obeying God. It's obeying him. And yet today, that seems so hard to live out. 
In 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, uh, John wrote, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. That is, we love each other best when we obey God's will that his word reveals to us. That's, that's how we love each other best. In this case, John points, uh, his point was that his readers should obey God's commands as they had heard from the very beginning of the apostles' preaching. And that they should not obey the gospel that the false teachers were proclaiming. All of the specific commandments of God are really one commandment or obligation for the Christian. And John had already stated this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 through 23. He says, And receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So now John, he finishes describing what practicing the truth means. It means walking in love. It means obeying God's commands. And, and now he goes on in, in these next verses, verses 7 through 11, and he talks about protecting. How do we protect the truth? He wants to encourage his readers to resist these false teachers who are distorting the truth and deceiving some of the believers. Earlier, the, the writer has spoken of Christian truth and love, and in the remainder of this short little, uh, some even call it a postcard. They don't even call it a letter. Um, the emphasis inevitably falls, inevitably falls on the need for truth in contrast to error. But these two sections, but they still, they interlock. The, the departure from truth results in a failure of love. Do you see that? If, if, if we get rid of truth, we're going to stop loving, at least in the way that God describes what love is. We may have emotion. We may have sentimental. You know the word I'm trying to say. But... They, they, they come together. Verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Not the capital Antichrist, but the Antichrist, one of many. One of many Antichrists. This verse gives reason to, to, for the exhortation in verse 6 and links what follows with verses 4 through 6. Now, some insight. The wandering prophets and preachers uh, did present a problem. You need to understand this because they, um, they could totally abuse 
their situation and their privilege. They had enormous prestige. And um, it was possible for the most undesirable of characters to enter into a way of life in which they moved from place to place, living in a very considerable comfort at the expense of the local congregation. Now, modern day, if someone were to come on into our church and say, hey, before Pastor Roger came, okay? Hey, I see you guys need a teacher. I can do that. I've got a word from the Lord for you. And he would come on in, and guess what? He would be housed at somebody's place, and he would eat the best food. He would be treated like royalty. And, and, and you know what? We're told in Scripture that we are to take care of missionaries, of pastors, of teachers, whether they are permanent or whether they are traveling. That is spoken throughout Scripture. But these false teachers completely take advantage of it. They completely abuse it. And not only do they abuse it, but they are spreading false lies. That's why John is so upset. That's why he's, he has to address this. You know, an itinerant preacher could make a very, very good living on being, on being a huckster. And you know what? I'm not going to say names, but I believe that we have plenty of them here today. Plenty of them. You know, even non-Christians recognize this. Lucian, who is a Greek writer, he, he, he draws a picture of a man who had found the easiest possible way of making a living without working. He was an itinerant charlatan, Lucian writes, who lived on the fat of the land by traveling around the various communities of the Christians and settling down wherever he liked and living luxuriously at their expense. Erroneous teaching had already begun to proliferate. I mean, it was just starting to spread like crazy throughout the young church. And John had to deal with it. And the common error at that time was Christology. It was on who is Jesus. I talked to you last week about the, those who, you know, uh, the docetists and, and the Gnostics, and, and, and they just were like bringing all these false lies in. And I told you that today people don't believe that Jesus was really a man. Well, they, they can't believe that he was God. Back then, they could believe he was more God, but they said, oh, he couldn't have a body. He wasn't incarnate. They divided the truth of who Jesus was, fully man and fully God. You can't separate those and still have a biblical Jesus. And that's what was going on then as it still goes on today. Jesus was and continues to be fully God and fully man. And this type of false teacher is a deceiver as well as opposed to Jesus. 
The elder says that anybody who denies the truth is a very antichrist, just as we might speak of a supremely evil person as the very devil, right? Man, that, that guy's the devil. And we know he's not actually the devil, but boy, he's acting like it. His actions or his words, whatever, it is false. Verse 8, John writes, Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Compromise with the false teachers could, could uh, lead to a loss of reward. Now, now understand this. A loss of salvation is not in view here because you can't earn your salvation. It's a free gift. But a loss of reward, that comes with, hey, all the things that, that we do in this life in obedience to Christ, guess what? There will be a reward. There will be a time when everything is laid out. And so there's, there can be loss of rewards. That's where the scale kind of goes, huh, not about salvation. So don't walk out of here thinking, oh, Craig said you could lose your salvation. No, no. Verse 9, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The, the picture in John's mind seems to have been that uh, of a Christian who uh, the false teacher said did not have the whole truth. And it's common even today for false teachers to uh, claim that those who do not agree with them are still intellectual um, infants. You know, I was looking, I was reminded when I was doing this study, I got a letter from Crew earlier this month, month of May, and it's asking, uh, requesting for uh, Bibles, the possibility of um, paying for different Bibles. The cost of the Bible is $6.75 per copy. And inside, when you give Bibles, you help churches grow, you impact generations, you reach those who've never heard before, you help answer prayers, and then this one, you combat false teaching. And God's timing. It says, in Zimbabwe, a cult has been gaining prominence. They argue that they receive their message directly from the Holy Spirit, so there is no need for the Bible. But as you've uh, given to provide Bibles, the Spirit has been working from crew staff. Thanks be to God that we are making inroads. We have given Bibles to cult members and they are reading. It's just like when Tom Canavino shares when they take a Jesus film out into a village and the, the local witch doctor who is fighting against it all of a sudden is impacted by the truth, the truth of who Jesus Christ is and gives his life over to Christ and now starts giving true spiritual direction to entire villages. It says, from the field, there are those that call themselves prophets. They start stealing people from our churches. <laughs> Some things never change, right? That is why it's important for people to have Bibles. They'll be rooted in the word because what makes people go to be taken by the wind is that the word of God is not rooted in them because if the word of God is planted in them, they cannot be moved away from 
the truth. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. In the culture of John's day, uh, philosophers and teachers relied on the people to whom they spoke for lodging and financial assistance. And, And yet John instructed his readers to refuse to help the false teachers in these ways. Now you might think, wow, that goes against us. We're supposed to be loving our enemies. Aren't we supposed to be showing hospitality? Guess what? Not at the expense of truth. And not at the expense of supporting someone who is leading others away in error. John's not mincing words here. You can take it up with God. Now, are we to be hospitable? Yes, we are. Are we to be uh, trying to help people um, when we can? Yes, absolutely. John, he didn't advocate the, the persecution of heretics but he strongly counseled his readers to give them no aid or encouragement in their destructive ministry. I believe he would have approved his readers' efforts to correct the false teachers in private and to lead them into a true appreciation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In in dealing with such people ourselves, we must also relate to their ministry in one way and to themselves in another. God loves all of his creation, but God does not love or put up with lies, particularly when it comes to about who he is. Hmm. Notice that John does not suggest that the elect lady and her children deal with false teachers in hatred or retaliate against them. Instead, he counsels that the false teachers be kept at a distance lest their heresy, their lies, destroy the young church. Um, John goes on and says, I have much to write to you but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face. We don't know if he ever made it there to that church. We don't. But he sure had a whole lot more to say. So I ask, what is truth? I believe John showed us that it's walking in truth and love. It's following in the footsteps of the one who is love, the one who is truth, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the only Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder, for the encouragement, for the exhortation that we have.
because of your word and because of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you will lead us to be obedient even when it's hard. To desire to walk in truth even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's not popular. Lord, and can we walk in the truth in such a way that our love is what shines, not our ability to win an argument. May our words be seasoned with grace and humility, but may those words always lead back to you and who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do in our lives and in this world. Father God, thank you so much for this little itty-bitty postcard. May we be challenged by John's words even today to practice and protect your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.